0: Good morning. Y'all can have a seat if you would like. I suppose you can stand. I don't mind. Um, But y'all can have a seat. Good morning. Summer was here for a minute and now it's gone. And now it's just good, nice Washington weather like it belongs. Uh, If this is your first time with us, my name is Andrew. I'm the preaching pastor for Anchor Church. Uh, Welcome. Uh, We will be in Hebrews. I have an abnormally small. music stand compared to whatever they took for the auction and so i'm just having a thing i can like hit so i hope if i knock this over we'll just pretend like it didn't happen and keep going um and that's how that'll go uh we'll be in hebrews chapter 13 starting in verse 1 Uh, i will pray for us and we can go ahead and dig on in uh king jesus this is your day and we are your people uh, Lord, uh, if we're going to get changed here today by your grace and mercy, it, it's not because of me or any of us, but because of you working in us and with us and through us for your glory. And so we do pray to be changed, God. I want to be different. I want to be, be more like you and less, less like my own selfishness. I want to be more like you, Jesus. I want, to, I want to appreciate more your grace and mercy. I want to live more in the radicality of the fact that I cannot earn your love, but that you've loved me first. I want, I want to enjoy you more with the rest of my life. And all of these things are only possible if you would help me to see you clear and help us to see you clear. And so, Jesus, we need you. We come with empty hands and ask that you would change us and help us see what it is to be your people today. Help us to love each other. Help us, help us to take responsibility for each other. Help us to bear one another's burdens because on, our own, on my own, I'm so inclined to just take care of me. But I want us to take care of us by your grace and mercy because, Jesus, you've taken such good care of us. And so I pray and ask for these things in your name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Um, okay, so we are talking about what the church is today. We're in Hebrews 13, starting in 1. 1. We are almost there. We've been in Hebrews since whenever, and soon we will be out of Hebrews. It's taken a long time to get there, but here we go. Um, so here's here's something that's interesting. I, ha- I had this pointed out to me by one of the profs at my at my school at a recent graduation, and he made the observation um, that that people don't just um, People aren't just lacking information about Jesus or the gospel. They actually have a lot of misinformation about Jesus and the gospel. And you might be here today, and this might be the first time you've ever been in a, in a church setting, or, or maybe you don't know anything about the Bible or whatever. And I think a lot of times, and I know for me before I met Jesus, I had a lot of misinformation. I think sometimes we can have this feeling when we're, when we're sharing the gospel with someone, uh, you know, and, and, and we share one of those beautiful, overwhelming truths of the reality of who Jesus is. We share the reality uh, that God loves us first. And that Christianity is not religion, but the reality and the pronouncement that Jesus came to save us from ourselves and give us light, uh, life. Uh, I was listening to old J. Vernon McGee, who they just run on the radio on a five-year cycle forever. Uh, he's been gone for a long time, but he still preaches good. Uh, anyways, I was listening to him saying the same thing. Hey, hey, the gospel is not about religion. It's about relationship. He's the same, the same thing that I say almost every Sunday that it's not about us trying to get to God, but God coming down and get to us. And there's something amazing that happens when you're working with Seattleites, when you're, when you're sharing the gospel with your neighbor, when you're, when you're in their garden just talking and it comes up, and you say something like, well, you know, I actually, you know, I don't, I don't see this religion. I see the reality that Jesus came to get me, in, and I don't, I don't, I don't live and, and breathe Jesus so he'll love me. I live and breathe Jesus because he loves me. And they look at you and say, can you say that again? Have you ever had that happen? Where they, okay, "What? Unpack that for me. Unpack that that distinct reality for me. Oh no, no! I think I don't think I didn't earn God's love in any way. It was all Jesus. It was all His cross. It was all His blood. It was all His mercy. And they're like, I have never heard that in my entire life. And you say, praise the Lord. And maybe that's not the day they meet Jesus, but it, it sure messes with them in a good way, in a positive way. But because of that, because of that experience, I think sometimes we can feel like people have no experience with Jesus or no experience with the Bible or no experience with the church when I think, in fact, most people have a misunderstanding and a misinformation about who Jesus is and what the Bible is. You know, you take the Bible and you take the, uh, you you take it and you take it apart and you take what seems to be like the worst 30 seconds of the whole thing and string it together and it seems crazy, right? If I took the worst, if I took your whole week last week, And I take the worst 30 seconds out of your week, and I don't mean worst, that's probably the wrong word there, but but in terms of our own life, if I took your week last week, and I take the worst 30 second highlight reel of your week, your your least patient, your least kind, your whatever, and I put it together and put it on the screen and said, okay everybody this is so and so, they're in the third row, and let's see their life, and we get the worst 30 seconds of their life, you get the worst 30 seconds of my life, right, and you're like woo, because it's condensed, right? And so often when we get the Bible and the story of Jesus presented to us, we get a couple snippets taken out of context, right? Out of context. Context is important. We get a couple snippets taken out of context about who God is and what the Bible is saying and say, well, this is the Bible. And people say, well, if that 30-second clip is the Bible, I'm not sure I'm in. Or or maybe it's just a book of rules. uh, That's just going to tell me what I'm supposed to do so God will love me. All these things aren't true. And I think one of the things that's most misrepresented is what the church actually is. What a church, this, you guys, me, and you, us together, what this actually is, is misrepresented. What, what the big C church, what the people of God are, it's misrepresented. It's misinterpreted. And when people say, well, if the church is blah, 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 then yeah, I'm not interested in that. And, and honestly, I think most Christians will look at and say, well, if the church is blah, 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 I'm not interested in that either. I'm interested in Jesus and his people, and that is different than that. And, and Hebrews today is going to do something wonderful for us. Hebrews today is going to show us some things uh, um, that will help us understand what it is to be a church. And I think sometimes you can understand even what the people of God are supposed to be when you understand who we actually want to be and who we want to be like. Uh, Not just aspirational, but the steps that we're taking as we're being transformed and changed by the grace and mercy of Jesus to be more loving, more kind, more gracious, more generous, more other-centered, more God-centered people. And that is a progress, that is a progression in our lives, because I thought when I got saved... My whole life was going to be fixed, and I'd never sin again, and that lasted for about 30 seconds, and I realized I have a long way to go, and God is continuously working on me by the power of His Spirit and the power of His Word, uh, and there are moments and times where it's not the 30-second oh-no clip of Anchor Church. It's the 30-second look-at-God-doing-miracles-this-week-through-the-church clip, right? Right? And when you see that, and we can point to that, and that's who we want to be, and in a sense, that's who we already are, and that's who God's changing us to be, you understand what a church, I think, actually is, and, and we're going to see that here uh, today in Hebrews, and hopefully that will become clear, because uh, oftentimes, I think, when people hear, like, the vision for, I mean, you live as a church planner, and people are like, what's the, what's the vision? Like, what's the, what are the programs? And, and, oh, you guys are in a, in a community center, you know, uh, are, are you going to build a building? Build a building in Seattle, goodness gracious, build a building, right? And we miss that the vision for a church, I think, should be to preach the gospel to anyone who will listen, to see the people who are the church grow in the gospel, and those people release to share the love of God with the city, and spend our whole time and life helping each other enjoy Jesus and live in the grace of the gospel more and more. So the vision's not, hey, we're going to build this thing, and it's going to be called this thing, and we're going to pay somebody to put a logo on it and it'll be our program this year and everybody will get in it and it's the thing. Yay, the thing! Oh! That's not vision. vision is that we would want another one another. The vision is that you would know your Bible more, not because of compulsion, but because of love, this time next year than this time today. That you would love each other more, that we would see this thing grow, not necessarily numerically, but in the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ. That we would have more stories together next year of when people put it on the line and made sacrifices, not so we could change the color of the curtains, but because someone needs help. Yeah, yeah sometimes we gotta buy curtains because they're there. I mean, the boys—we got these from the, at the boys and girls club, and we had a big old basketball uh, uh, window, and people would huck basketballs at the window while I was preaching, and people were like, you know, it's a little distracting when a basketball hits the back of the wall. And we said okay, maybe we should get curtains because that part of the vision is just good enough church, right? And I don't mean, um, what's, the, what's the proper word in there? I don't mean like uh, low, uh, lame for lame's sake. Oh, we're lame and holy because our speakers don't work. Yay, holy! I mean that we, get the, we got these because it was distracting and people couldn't hear when someone said Jesus saved sinners and they're like, I'm watching basketballs. I didn't hear you say Jesus saved sinners because I was watching basketballs. And so we got the curtains. Yeah, there's some of that stuff, but ultimately at the end of the day, is is the gospel being preached? Are disciples being made? Are people enjoying Jesus more? Are people knowing how much God loves them more? Are they understanding that they're more forgiven and less condemned than they could possibly imagine more and more as they grow in the gospel? And I think we see that here in Hebrews. And by this, I all mean that we are talking about the vision of being a boring, old, normal, New Testament church. Okay? So here we go. Verse 13, chapter 13, verse 1. Let brotherly love continue. All these verses are in the imperative, by the way. Do this, do this, do this, do this. And, and you have to take into consideration we're in chapter 13. He spent most of, the majority of the other 12, verse, uh, other 12 chapters saying Jesus rose from the dead and Jesus is better than Moses and Jesus brought the new covenant so you're forgiven for your sins and Jesus has done the things to where that God can say uh, that, Jesus, that God remembers your sins and lawless deeds no more. It's been, it's been a drum that's been beat. Jesus has done this and Jesus has done this and Jesus has done this and Jesus has done this and, done this, and, done this, and this is who you are. And so now we're in 13, all the way in 13 after he said, look at King Jesus, isn't he awesome? And we say, because King Jesus is so awesome, let brotherly love continue. What's assumed in a phrase like, let brotherly love continue? That he knows they're authentic followers of Jesus Christ because he already knows they love each other. A little background on this church, this is a broken church. This is a religious church. This is a wonky church, and they're getting off, and yet the author Hebrews is still willing to call them a church because he knows they love each other in the name of Jesus. And when we say love each other, I mean, this is the, you get in these great linguistics conversations with three- and four-year-olds. I love this, I love that, I love mama, I love the car, right? And we use that same language as, you know, grown-ups. Like, I love this, I love that. And surely you don't mean you love your mom the same way you love your car. You don't mean that. But we had that one little word to try and talk about uh, them both, right? So we have to understand, when we say, let brotherly love continue, the kind of love we are talking about in the gospel of Jesus Christ. John chapter 15, verse 13 says, this is love. You lay down your life for your friends. And I think I actually marked that one. Yeah, let's go there. Uh, John thirteen fifteen. 15. Uh, this is my commandment. This is Jesus. That you love one another as I have loved you. So this isn't just um, you know if it's convenient for me to help you move I might find some time to show up for a half an hour, right? And then I can say I can tell all my non-Christian friends, well, what do you do this weekend? I help my buddy from church move because we're Christians and we love each other. Yeah, moving is horrible and I hate moving and I never want to move again. And you know just because just I don't like moving, I don't like putting my things in a U-Haul. Uh, but but at the end of the day, uh, it is more than that. It's vastly more than that. Uh, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends, if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. The God of the universe, because of Jesus, who came into history, isn't just keeping a report card or something on you. You if you are in Christ, are God's friend. You are God's friend. Do you have any good friends? I hope you have good friends. I, and if you don't have good friends, I want you to have good friends. But you need to understand that the friend that you have in God overshadows your best, most self-giving, self uh, uh, self, uh, uh Pouring out friend, you got that, that is vastly trumped by the friend that we have in God, and we have that friend in God because Jesus Christ came to get us. The radicality of the one who spoke the universe into existence because of Jesus Christ calls you friend. Boom! Let brotherly love continue, friends. Why? The way Jesus has been our friend, we are to be friends to each other. He said, "I'll lay my life down." This is how you know friendship. This is friendship. This is love. He's not just talking about like. uh, There's a lot of things he's not talking about. This is, this is big stuff. And this should be the mark of the church already. Uh, Number two, verse two, and he goes on. He gives this kind of list. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. For thereby some have entertained angels unawares. So it's not just love for each other. It's, it's love for the city. It's love for those uh, outside our ranks. You know what I mean? It, it's love for uh, the other people who are meeting this building. Joe said, hey, they're going to come move some stuff. I didn't even know that was happening. It's awesome. Come move some stuff for some people that you don't even know. Be kind to them. Show them hospitality. Uh, and I think this is important for us. Um, you know, and we talked about the diapers, which are so important. Um, in... In Luke 10, there's this great interaction between uh, Jesus and a lawyer. Uh, and, and by lawyer, I mean someone whose job it was to interpret the law of Moses. And, and he says to Jesus, well, what are we supposed to do? You're the teacher. You tell me what we're supposed to do, Jesus. And, of course, he's a lawyer, so I think he probably actually knew what he, what he thought Jesus was supposed to do. And this is the one time Jesus flips it around and makes it a question rather than a command. Well, what does the law of Moses say? Love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and your neighbor as yourself? And Jesus says, bingo, do that, and you'll live. And what does he say? You know? He doesn't just say, oh, cool, good job. Right, great idea, Jesus. I'm going to go look for some people to love. I'm going to try to love God more. He says to him, well, who's my neighbor? That's where we get the famous story of the, uh, of the guy with the donkey who's a, National- a Samaritan, there it is. Had to go through the Rolodex, and there, boom, Samaritan. He's a Samaritan. The good Samaritan, uh, which is, uh, we, we say that. We say, good. oh, he's a good Samaritan. He's a really nice guy. That was supposed to be like really pejorative and a nasty, horrible thing to say in the context that, that he would be a good Samaritan. They're an oxymoron in the mind of the uh, first century Palestinian. It doesn't make sense and it doesn't add up, but Jesus, no, no. That guy treated him like a neighbor. That guy took care of him. And that guy loved him. And so when you think about, um, when you think about vision, <laughs> when you think about things like how are we going to do, di- you know, do the diaper thing for family works and how are we going to do this other thing? Um, that, those are good and right things to do, right? But we don't, need to understand why we're doing it and why as a church we even make that our aim to do those. For the simple reality that you and I as Christians are called to love our neighbors. What are we doing when we get diapers in the hands of people who don't have diapers for their babies? Which I mean, every time, I I can't help but say it, almost every time, I think, that might not sink in if you've not had to deal with that particular situation, but if you've had to deal with diapers, imagining hitting the point where you don't have money and you don't have diapers and you don't know what to do is about the most desperate moment I can think of uh, for a, a parent who's probably dealing with how much other stress, if you're already in that spot, what else is going on in your life to bring you to that spot? We have a chance to just love those people just getting some diapers it's not a big deal you know and we're just trying to look, show hospitality to strangers it's hospitality it's sort of outward but it's hospitality that means we want to be a place where someone can come on in here and sit down drink a cup of coffee we have coffee right we have coffee. Why do we, have co- why do we go to the trouble to make coffee? Why, why do people come in and serve to make coffee? Because have you ever walked into a new church? You had to have walked into a new church at some point in time. It is a weird and awkward moment. This might be, if this is the first time you ever walked in this church, you know what i mean? it might be a weird and awkward moment for me to say this out loud. But there's nothing like just being I'm just going to grab my cup of coffee and find a place to sit for a minute and try and figure out what's going on here. That's just my, experience. I don't know, you might be different. You might be the extrovert. I'm the introvert. That's like, okay, this is, okay, what do I do? Coffee. I can do coffee. Step one Check. Now what? Is there a bathroom somewhere? <laughs> um, number three. First three. Uh, and it's also worth saying that these things don't just hang out there. Just like the, the love. I'm going to knock this thing over. Uh, the love that we show to one another is in response to love that Jesus has showed us. Who amongst us were strangers before Jesus welcomed us into his family? All of us. How do we treat strangers? We treat strangers the way Jesus treated us. That's what we're doing there as a community. He goes on. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them. And now he begins to connect these up like that last one. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you're also in one body. Uh, first century, you get thrown in the can. Uh, it's basically a dungeon. Uh, when Paul was, was writing to the Philippians, it was probably a one-by-one one square for air and light. That's it. And they don't give you food. If you're going to get fed in prison, your people have to come and bring you food. So if you're in prison for being a Christian and someone's willing to come and bring you food and you get thrown in jail for being a Christian, what might they think about you if you are to bring Christians who are in prison for being Christians food? they might think you're a Christian and throw you in the can right next to them. But they're going to starve to death. What are you going to do? You're going to remember them as if you were in prison right along with them because you're one. This is a radical little statement because you're one body. So that means that if you are a Christian, you're in the family of God, and that family of God piece actually uh, uh, overrides every other piece of your life. That you're in God's family. You're new to this new family. Which means that if if you have family members, which I do, uh, which is this is a hard reality to say sometimes, that means that you're actually closer related in God's eyes to some guy you've never met in the middle of Africa than you are your own blood kin. Now I'm not saying don't love and take care of and share the gospel with, for goodness sakes, you're your family. But this, this reality is that we're connected to this global family and there are people all around. And have you ever experienced it? You're in the airport. You're sitting next to somebody from Australia or something and somehow you start talking about something and it turns out you're both Christians and all of a sudden you've got all these things to talk about. Is the weirdest phenomenon ever. It's awesome though, by the way. Uh, so how many Christians around the world right now are dying because they don't have drinking water? Right? Or for the faith? How many of the brothers and sisters around the world are in the can because they love Jesus, where I just get to stand here and say, Jesus, 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 which is awesome and great. Now, I'm not saying you have to move to Africa and Canada, but I, we, we, are, we are resourced people here in 2014 in North America. Do not forget the brothers and sisters. Don't forget the brothers and sisters. It says something to the world. When we treat people we don't know like family because they're family in Jesus. Because we're one body. And we're one body in Christ. And part of the reason we associate with them, um, Jesus, what is our fuel for that reality? We associate with people who are in these spots, like people in prison, for example. And why he's calling them. Why he's calling them to associate with someone who other people are like, well, yeah, he is a Christian, but he's in jail. And if you go to jail, then they're going to think you're, you're with him. And then you're going to go to jail. And then you're in jail. And that's going to go poorly for you. And people are going to look at that and be, oh, look who he's associated with. What did Jesus do? Jesus didn't just associate with a highfalutin. Is that a real word? Falutin? Uh, chapter 7, verse thirty-one or 36 of Luke. Uh, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. That's Jesus he's asking. And he went to the Pharisee's house and he took his place at the table and behold a woman of the city who was a sinner when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house brought an alabaster flask of ointment and standing behind him at his feet weeping she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him, saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known what sort of woman this is who is touching him, uh, for he is a sinner, or she is a sinner, and uh, touching him, for she is a sinner, and Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you, which is always a bad deal when Jesus has something to say to you like that. It's, oh, you know when you've been reading the Gospels, it's not gonna go well for Simon. Uh, the reality is, is if we're walking with people, maybe, maybe someone just meets Jesus. Because the, the, the truth of the community of God is, is that you don't need to get cleaned up to come in here. And in fact, if you, the, the, it's actually going to be more, um, it's almost going to be detrimental to your to your coming into the family of God through Jesus, if you spend your life trying to clean yourself up and then come and say, oh, I'll be with the church people now because I'm all cleaned up, the reality is I can't clean myself up on my own. I stand before Jesus with empty hands saying, you clean me up. Help me. I can't help myself. I'm drowning. I need you. And in his grace and mercy, he moves, which means, guess what? As you're walking with brand new baby Christians, you could be sitting at the Starbucks and come, someone could look at you and say, what are they doing with that person? How dare they sit with that person who doesn't have their act together? I'm a Christian, I only hang out with people out there, quote unquote, act together. Try again, because Jesus associated with me when I was wacky, to say the least. He came down and associated with me. He saved me, and I was not cleaned up. And he actually did that in the incarnation in such a physical way that this guy's thinking, oh man, why is he even letting her touch him? What does he say? Was I? Oh, he's about to tell him something. It's good. And he answered, "Say it, teacher." A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed five hundred denarii uh, One owed five hundred denarii and the other owed fifty. Uh, when they could not pay, he canceled the debt on both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose from whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say amongst themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? Because only God can do that, by the way. And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And again and again and again and again and again and again, you read the Gospels. And again and again and again and again, Jesus hangs out with people he shouldn't be hanging out with. Again and again and again. Hangs out with people he shouldn't be hanging out with, saves people who everybody looks at and says, No one could save that guy. That guy'd never believe. That guy? Oh man, he has his, he has his PhD in philosophy. That guy'll never believe. Oh, that guy? He's wiling out so tough. That guy's doing this. This guy's doing that. And you can fill in a thousand blanks and you look at him and say, That guy's never going to get saved. That guy's never going to get saved. What is God in the business of doing? Miracles. And when we take that posture, friends, our biggest danger is we think that it was like a logical move that you got saved. Well, that guy will never get saved. What about you? Everybody else is looking at you saying the same thing. Right? And at the point in time in which we think that guy will never get saved, but I, I'm a logical fit, we, we kind of change the scales on who's saving who here, who's doing what to get where. Well, of course he saved me. I am an awesome Jenga player. Does anyone even use a Jenga anymore? I don't. <laughs> but it, sh- it messes with our hearts and we begin to think we got to earn it again. It messes with our hearts and our walks and we forget that it is just as much of a miracle. It's just as much of grace and just as much of mercy that you're sitting where you're sitting right now on the every day. Every day. doesn't make sense apart from Jesus. It's the only reason you're sitting here. It's his grace. It's his mercy. The only reason you're sitting here and kids scream for Jesus. I can hear him, at least. They may be coming up my step and you can't hear them. That's a gift. And so when you understand that this guy who associated with Zacchaeus, the money lender, I'm talking about association, three people on crosses Jesus, so associated with humanity, dies between two thieves, one of whom he says, Remember me. Today you will be with me in paradise. Not only am I going to associate you, you get to come into the kingdom. And no, you don't get to do anything about it. You're welcome. So we associate with each other in the worst of circumstances, in the hardest of times, in the biggest of junk. Uh, verse four, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexual moron, the adulterous. So he's dealing with stuff, infidelity outside of marriage, infidelity inside of marriage. But this is a very interesting and powerful, let marriage be held in honor among all. Now, as Christians, we understand marriage to be one man, one woman, one lifetime, but it's, but it's one bank account and one covenant and one life and one home and one this and one that. And that we're people who have Etched on ourselves, a, a kind of monogamy—the kind of monogamy that Jesus has for His church, His bride. Because Jesus came for His one bride, and He laid His life down. And this is the whole model, and the whole thing. We're, display- we're displaying this for that reason. So it, it's not just the physical stuff, right? It's—it's—it's it's, it's physical, yes. It's emotional, yes. It's spiritual. It, it's not doing married stuff with people who you're not married to. It's—it's it's, it's not playing house. Those are for married people because if we reduce marriage to only the physical, we miss everything God has for us in it. Marital fidelity is so much deeper. It's the love that a husband has for his wife when he doesn't want to get out of bed at three in the morning to check the lock, to make sure the lock is checked. If the lock is unlocked, who knows? You're the the one that's got to get up out of bed. You don't want to get up out of bed. When it says that Husbands, lay down your life. We want to be like, yes, I would, I would, I would deal with intrusion. Yes, I will do that. But no, I will, not, I will not destroy my boat or my Xbox or my airplane model collection or whatever the thing is. Yeah, I'll do that one because that one never happens. But I won't lay my life down in every other area of my life. It does happen. It, it is tra- I, don't want to, I don't want to undermine what that actually, you know, I want to be careful with my words. But, but you know what I mean? Like when we miss, let it be held in honor. Why? So when people look in the church, they see people who are doing this thing in a way that doesn't make sense. We grew up in a time and a day where so many people grew up in weird and funky and broken homes, and then they can just actually see a family where two people are laying down their lives for each other and pouring into their kids and being sacrificial and being other-centered, and they say, why are you doing this? What's your secret? We had a we had a gal in the church, literally had friends pull her aside and say, what's your secret? You've got it all together. And she's like, my life's a mess and I love Jesus. That's my secret. There you go. Jesus. And it's not the Jesus ticket game. It's not the, uh, if you love Jesus and you get married, everything will be perfect. You'll never, ever, ever, ever have a disagreement with your spouse in all your life and everything is going to be cheery forever. It means that you can love one another you can forgive one another, you can serve one another, and they, by day get made more like Jesus through the life you have, loving and serving and caring for one another. Yeah, it's not like, a, oh, they, oh, you got that book from that guy and I got this book from that guy and you use the Bible and we're all happy. No, no, it, it, it's us being transformed in the likeness of his son and more and more laying our lives down in service. And that we just have etched on us that monogamy, the, the single-mindedness of Christ for his people and their holiness. What I think is interesting, I will also add social commentary, perhaps. Sometimes that's a drum that we love to beat. What I think is interesting that Hebrews has verse 4 right next to it. What's verse 4 say? So we can get up there and beat the, like, the marriage. Room. You got it? Marriage, marriage, marriage. And then verse 4 comes up, and it says, uh, verse 5, pardon me, I I'm going to trip on that and fall over. have to kick it. Uh, Keep your life free from the love of money. Wait a second. It sounds like there's a couple drums in the drum kit. What do you mean keep your life? You you, want to bang the one drum. What about this other drum over here? Keep your life free from a love of money. We talk about marriage. What about money? Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my hel- helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? It's more than money. It's that you have everything in Jesus so that with confidence we can say, what can man do to me? I have everything in God because of Jesus. I have his Holy Spirit dwelling inside of me. What can they do to me? Nothing. Nothing because we have God. Uh, but but, but the, it's... <laughs> It's interesting because we can, we can swing on a couple of poles here, right? Uh, one of the most misquoted verses, there's many misquoted verses in the Bible. There's many verses that are not in the Bible. God helps those who help himself. Thank you, Benjamin Franklin, not a Christian. Uh, that is not in the Bible. You won't find it when you're typing it into your search engine. Where is that verse? It's not there. Maybe it's in Proverbs. Maybe it's in Proverbs. No, it's not. It's not in Proverbs. It's not anywhere. God doesn't help those who help himself. God helps those who are sitting with their hands open saying, Jesus, I need you. Um, Likewise, money is the root of all evil. No, it is the root of many kinds of evil. Uh, Money is a God that we love to make God. It is a horrible God. It is a bad God. Uh, It doesn't do good things for us or for our hearts. But the scary thing is that that verse in James, when we're not paying attention, just the desire, just the thing inside of us that says, I I just need a little more. I just want to, if I could just be in that strata, if I could just get that new job and have more, uh, and instead of finding my satisfaction, in Jesus just that desire corrupts our hearts just the desire to be rich it's not rich people are bad and people who are not rich are not bad it's the desire to be rich it's the desire to find our satisfaction in something other than Jesus messes with our minds and messes with our hearts and it turns out will not bring us to satisfaction Uh, actually when we teach on the Bible it turns out that the things in there get so wacky and hard when you actually Take it apart, because I think sometimes we want to just say, oh, well, you know, I'm supposed to give X amount to the church or whatever. And, and we miss that God wants absolutely everything you've got. He wants every ounce of everything you've got. Uh, and he wants you to use it for his glory, which means that just as much God, as God wants you to, say, uh, buy diapers for family works, perhaps. He also wants you to put food on the table for your kids, right? Gas in your car. Pay your mortgage or rent or whatever you've got. But in all, we remember who gave us every shred of all of it and remember who it's all for. It's not that, oh, this money's for diapers and this money's for money. You've been given a house. Maybe you've got got a house. Maybe you've got an apartment. And and you've got these kids. All of a sudden, you realize you have a mission center for telling your kids about you have a base of operations to teach your kids the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord. And it's a gift. But we want to be content with what we actually have. That's why we're okay with these curtains, right? It'd be cooler if they were maybe royal purple or something. But they work. They make a hallway and so we can get coffee. Okay. Okay. What do I got for time? Mark 10 says this, and I think it's worth listening to, particularly here in North America. Uh, Mark 10, verse 17, and he was, uh, that's Jesus, and he was setting out on his journey. A man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except for God alone. Jesus is awesome. You could preach a whole sermon right on that one. Uh, You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do um, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have done and kept from my youth. And Jesus looked at him and loved him. Looked at him and loved him. Love him is circled in my Bible. And said to him, you lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. Now what he's not saying is if you go do these things and you get to go to heaven. What he did is he identified his idol and said that is what you love more than me. Ditch it. That's what's more important to you than God. Get rid of it. There's all kinds of things that might be in any of our lives that are that way. Money helps us get those things. But he looked at him and he loved him. Okay, uh, number six. Nope, I have it as number six. It is verse number seven. Uh, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of the way of their life and imitate their faith. Uh, this is important. Uh, this is important for a number of reasons. Uh, I've been asked several occasions why should people read things like first Timothy or 2 Timothy? Someone's going to correct me. The Timothy letters or Titus, which are addressed to, you know, these are the qualifications of elder. Why should I even care? I don't feel like I'm going to be an elder. I'm not called out. Why should I care? I don't know why I was about to do that, but I felt real cozy like I should. um, And then I almost fell. Um, It's because you need to know what to look for. We're elder-led congregationalists, which means when the elders say we think this guy should be an elder, we actually bring it to the church and the church needs to look in that guy's life and say, yeah, that's a guy I will follow. But we really, 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 really mess up on a couple of things, to be honest with you, in the church in 2014, on what a pastor is supposed to be. Usually it's like, well, he's got an MBA and he's a this and he's a that and he's a that. So what? Who cares? I don't care. Well, he's got an MDiv, right? Right? You could have credentials. Hey, if he learned Greek and Hebrew, it's really hard and it's very helpful in studying the Bible. And if you have an opportunity to do it, hey, power to the people, do it. But what I am saying is that does not make a godly man. That does not make someone who will lay his life down for the people of God. That does not make someone worthy of imitation. You want to be able to look at a guy's life and see it and say, man, yes, he is a sinner. No, he doesn't belong on pedestal. Yes, I'm going to follow him because look, look, yeah, he's not perfect. His kids aren't, you know, they're in progress people like everybody else. Okay? If we're looking for the wrong things, we'll put the wrong people in the wrong places. Period. Imitate their way of life. This is the place we start with our elder candidates. Matthew, Mark chapter 10, verse 45. And, um, you know, if you've been hanging out with Anchor Church, you're like, that one again, huh? Yep, that one again. Verse 42 says this. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who consider, uh, are considered rulers of the Gentiles, that's out there, lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. It shall not be so among you. You're not looking for the guy on the top of the dog pile. You're looking for the guy on the bottom. It is awkward, by the way, to preach about these things. I am a man in progress. I am not a perfect man. But I'll tell you what, people like Pastor Joe, I can look at his life, and I see him on the bottom of the dog pile again and again. I see him laying his life down for his family. I see him laying his life down for his wife. I see him sacrificing diligently to know the word of God and I can look at him and commend him to you again and again and again because he is a godly servant of Jesus Christ, not a CEO. Joe gets to be an elder not because he's a CEO, but because he's a member of this church who's been called by God to serve in that role. There's a difference there. Do you hear what I said? A member of this church called to serve in that role. He's not different or apart from everybody else. Special job, hard job. I'll use the word in the elders who are to the church in Philippi with the overseers together, the people of God, uh, but it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you, this word means to lead by the way in the Greek you need to be needs to be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For the Son of Man, this is what it's rooted in, for the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life for a rans- as a ransom for many. So the aim of our life, I have never in all my days, ever, 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 in all the churches I know, uh, in all the people I know, when they get their, their name in the, the paper, I've never heard them, I've never had them send me an email and say, hey, uh, I know the Bible says woe to you when they speak well of you and that we shouldn't be like the Gentiles, but the Gentiles are really celebrating us right now. Uh, Am I doing this right? Am I on target? They say, yay, we're in the paper and everybody loves us. Maybe, I'm not saying that's even wrong or bad and not everyone has to throw rocks at the church all the time, but what I am saying is we need to be careful, we don't just look at it and say, well, a marketing firm who does the same thing we're doing gets accolades and we're getting accolades just like them, because we're not a business, we're a family, we're a people, we're the people of God. And so the pastors need to look different than CEOs, they need to look like pastors, Latin word meaning shepherd. Shepherds. And and, and particularly in this uh, imitation, this way of life. So our aim is not to think of how can we get that program with the brand on it to get everybody in it. Our aim is to think how can we make disciples of Anchor Church and tell Seattle about the gospel of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 11 and 1, Paul says the craziest, boldest, weirdest thing. He says, imitate me. That's bold. Look at my life and do what I do but he doesn't just say, hey, imitate me because I have cornflakes for breakfast and I'm really into uh, Rage Against the Machine and I I have a pink Cadillac and do all those things. It's about as random as I can get, by the way. (laughs) Because you're free in Christ to do all those things. And it would be creepy if we had a pastor who did those things and you thought godliness was getting a pink Cadillac. We've got two pink Cadillacs and we don't know what to do with them. Imitate me is what? I imitate Christ. So, yeah, I wear sweaters and listen to George Jones. You should listen to George Jones because he is amazing. And then you'll listen to me like, this is, I was going to say a different word, this is not good. And then I'll say, then you don't really like country music because if you don't like George Jones, you don't actually like country music. But I digress because it's not about George Jones for the record. Imitate me as I am. How do you study your Bible? That's not to say you have to study just like me. But but, but finding somebody who's further along the way than you, say, how do you study your Bible? How do you make a disciple? What is a church? What is the gospel? How do you do parenting? What do you do about this? I mean, I try to be even careful, so careful, with my own idiosyncrasies in my own lifestyle stuff. Even when I'm hanging out in my living with friends who are part of the church, I have an inclination to say, I'm going to say this now. This isn't like pastor stuff. This is just, you know, I think kale is better than iceberg lettuce or something, or iceberg lettuce is better than kale or something, you know. But hey, who cares, right? Like it's just, we're being friends, we're just talking here. The last thing I need to say, you should all burn your kale and buy iceberg lettuce. Doesn't make any sense because that's not what the book says. Uh, 2 Timothy 2 and 22. Timothy, take godly men who will tell godly men who will tell godly men that is the job of the elders and by the way that is the job of the church but is our chief concern how do we find people who will take the package of the gospel and the doctrine of God and give that to someone else in such a way that they can give that to somebody else in such a way they can give that to somebody else and by the way with no monuments or no statues or no plaques for the pastor who died you know 300 years ago and no one no one remembered, you know like there's a couple standouts in all of church history a couple excuse me a couple and we we're like oh yeah Charles Spurgeon named a kid after him great Charles you know how dudes Charles Spurgeon trained who you don't know their name tons where do they preach everywhere where do they pastor everywhere who's going to remember me nobody who cares I don't because Jesus will My aim is not to do something or build something here that our church will be remembered forever because it won't, except for by Jesus. My aim and goal is that you and I would grow in godliness. You and I would grow in love for the gospel. And the way that we as pastors do that is by enjoying Jesus first, by taking care of our wives and our kids first, by enjoying and just being saturated in the gospel truth of Jesus and inviting everybody on in it. Because someone's a pastor doesn't mean they're like the godliest person in the church, even. You know? None of those things. Just got a job to do. The job to say, hey, Jesus is right there. And and all these things, right? 1045 and the way Jesus loved us. It's us being saturated in the reality and the story of who Jesus is and having our church by the Word. Not by a program or the thing the guy did a conference for in a big city that everything's cool. Uh, none of those things. It's to be formed by this book and by Jesus and by His Spirit. Because the conference stuff, that's good. You, you go to the use section, the, you go to the use, there's an outlet, and I won't tell you where it is because then you'll get all my good books. You go to the, the use section at this one store in Mount Vernon, and they just have all these Christian books for a quarter. I'll tell you, I'm not going to be greedy. I can't remember its name, but it's by the co-op, and you can go there and buy amazing, amazing books and go there because it's cool anyways. Anyways, so you're there, and, and you just go down the road, and you're like, oh, it's... This is how you're going to grow your church in 78, and it was called this, and this is how you're going to grow your church in this. And here's that one book by that guy. I've heard of that one, and the ten others I haven't heard of, and all this stuff. And nowhere in there, like, there's not, what? Here's how you're going to do life. I don't, don't grow a, if you mean by grow a church in the gospel of Jesus, I'm in. If you mean grow in America, hey, yeah, sure, if that's what God wants to do, fine. But I mean, are you growing? Am I growing? Do I love Jesus more this week than I did last week? Do you love Jesus more than you did that? That is the concern of the pastor because that is my concern for my own spiritual life and that what I care about in my life is what I'll care about in your life. If all I'm thinking about is how big we can make this thing or how cool we can make the branding, all I'm going to be talking to you about is inviting your friends and having cool stuff. If my aim in life is my growth in Jesus, my wife's growth in Jesus, my children's growth in Jesus, my friends' growth in Jesus. I'm going to be concerned that you grow in Jesus. And this is the kind of church, that's the vision I have for this church, that we be people who care about this book and want to grow in the gospel with everything we've got. I want to die for that. I want to bleed out and die for that. I want to give the rest of my whole life too. When we don't believe in this radical shaping in the gospel and that it's really about us growing in the gospel and us being a church that reflects the glory and wonder of Jesus. Uh, when we don't believe this, we do a number of weird and different things. One, we begin to have a superiority in our own church towards other churches. Well, you know, we've got that program with the brand and they don't even have a brand on any of their stuff. Can you believe that? Uh, hey, if we make it look cool, especially if people got gifts and talents in the church? Yeah, I'm not saying lame. I'm just saying priorities, right? There's a difference. So, so what we begin to do then is, like, well, they don't have this thing. And, and what I realized somewhere along the lines of this whole deal, and then I'll close this down, it, is that when, when you look at, like, Acts 2, how many lunches I've wasted. If we could just be an Acts 2 church, if we could do this. When I stopped, like, looking at my own navel and looked around at what churches are up to, I realized the Bible has about five things listed in Acts chapter 2. They love the word. And we use these as our five responses, by the way. Uh, word, worship, community, witness, and renewal. Uh, They love the word, they worship Jesus, they live in community, uh, they're telling people about Jesus, and they love their neighbors. Well, all of a sudden, if that's a successful church, I got oodles of churches in the Midwest who miss small groups, and then the 15 other lame things we started calling them, and I won't say any of them because I have friends who do all of the names, but really what we mean is a small group, and by a small group we mean people who get together and love each other in the name of the gospel, and they've been doing over that over potlucks for decades. And we wouldn't look in and say, well, they have cool chairs and music and stuff. Man, they love Jesus. We don't need to have superiority over them. Um, when we don't believe that it's about the gospel, uh, we think it's about us. We think it's about the, the dressing, not ranch, but like the curtains or whatever. At the end of the day, when you look at what a church is and the reason we do what we do is because of who we are in Jesus I think you can actually see that what we're talking about then is something radically different than whatever they mean the misinformed folk I don't mean a building obviously I what I love about renting space I don't mean a program I don't mean a any I mean this I mean you and me this is a church it's wonderful and it's beautiful and why are we a church I I love the very next line and we'll close it here and I'll dig into this one next week. But, but the, so it's church, 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 do this, do this, do this. What's his very next phrase? Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We are a church because of Jesus. We structure ourselves around Jesus and his word. And I think, honestly, if when I help my neighbors to see this, all of a sudden it's like, meh that's not as cruddy as i thought it was i think when we see this we take not not sunday attendance not even community group more serious we take doing life together a church is ultimately a people who want to enjoy jesus with everything we have who are willing to say to be a member of this church is to say this is a people i'm willing to take responsibility for and this people's taking responsibility for me to be formed in the gospel of jesus it's not me signing some contract or whatever it's me getting with this people and helping them follow jesus and them helping me follow jesus that's a church And that is honestly really, really different than what I thought a church was. I'm gonna pray for us. Jesus, we love you. Uh, We are your people by your grace, by your mercy, by your favor. (sighs) Lord, help us together to follow you. Help us together to help each other follow you. Help us to know it's not buildings and bricks, but it's us. You didn't come into history to save a bunch of buildings and bricks. You didn't save us so we could cook up some program for discipleship, so we could talk about discipleship. You saved us to make disciples and be disciples. You didn't save us to, to think about enjoying you. You saved us to enjoy you. Uh, you, didn't, you didn't save us to, to, to think about it, but to do it and to be it and to live it. Help us, Lord to live it. You died so we could live. Help us to live. Jesus, we love you and pray these things in your name. Jesus Christ, amen.